Welcome to this week's episode of Hey, I think we're good here. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jackson Metakekia. And I'm Matt West. And we're here getting to know the sport of volleyball through the life experiences our guests have to share with us. Come take a listen. Today's episode stars current head coach at the University of Nevada, Reno, Lee Nelson. Lee takes us through his time as a player at UCSB and the heartbreaking five-set loss that they suffered in the national championship, the eclectic group of leadership that that team had, and how he's seen those same personalities on other powerhouse teams that he's been on staff for, an in-depth analysis about being a part of what Karch Karai calls the greatest run in sports history, how that 2011 UCSB team came to fruition and turned the tables to make it into the national championship game after being the seventh seed in the MPSF playoffs, how his time in Miami has shaped his ideologies as a coach, and now his most recent years as head coach at UNR. Check it out. What part? Uh, it's like just east of Ankara. Oh, okay. Is yeah. that like you can get into the city that way or it's close enough to where you can do that or is that too far? Mm, probably like it's a little bit further, but we're more close to the Black Sea, which is great. It's like a mm. two-hour drive to the Black Sea. Nice. So if at any point in time we wanted to go there, we went actually earlier in preseason. We just took a weekender there, which was great. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it's good. It's a nice little small town that appreciates volleyball. Oh, perfect. Huh? Yeah, which is actually pretty awesome. I wish we had our fans because I heard it's just wild. Oh, really? Yeah, that's right. Nothing, huh? Yeah, so there's not a lot, but I think there's like the select 20 spectators that come in and they still are a riot. Really? Yeah, just 20 guys and they just talk. And they talk just smack like to the bench. Like they're right on top of them the whole match. They're in it. Uh, can they move from one side to the other? Mm, or, no, uh, they have to stay, but they uh, still, like, they're just yelling from the other side. Yeah, no, there's nothing stopping them. I think there's more police officers in the stands than spectators. They don't uh, care. <laughs> uh, nice. Well, they're probably stoked to get out and do something, too, right? Sure. A lot of pent-up energy. Oh, yeah, and I think, from what I understand... Turkey just went on complete lockdown for the weekend. So nobody outside, nobody inside at all. Yeah, so they're really trying to get a hold on this. Yeah. Which is okay. I mean, you know, yeah. you just sacrifice yeah. a weekend or whatever we have to do to get it under wraps. But Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm good. It's been a long time. What I, I haven't seen you in what? Like, uh, like 10 years? 10 years, yeah. Yeah, no, I was thinking about it like, uh, what was your last year? 2015. 15, so 15, 14. Your first year was 12, so I was basically done, right? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. My last year was 11. Yep. Um, I mean, obviously, just involved in the recruiting process and all that. Um, yes. But you committed pretty early, if I remember correctly, to, to Pep um, yep. in the process. Right. Yeah, I committed going into my senior year. That, yeah, my oh. summer of junior year, which is so. Okay. Yeah, it's weird because now, obviously, now you're in the women's game, and that's so late. Yeah, no, and it for is. For the guys, we were like trailblazers to commit <laughs> that early. 
I know it. Yeah, no, that's true because most of your class was still open at that point. Yeah, you know, because think, official yeah. visits made sense for the on the men's side. Oh know? yeah, and we all wanted them. We all yeah. wanted to take our officials, but our parents were the ones that were like, "You're going." Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. man. <laughs> we had plans, you know. We wanted to go see. Yeah, these no, I remember. I remember. I mean, we had guys that came to Santa Barbara just for the visit, you know, like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was trying, uh, Maurice Torres, right? I think he was pretty much already locked in to be a play at Pep. He's like, I got a visit at Santa Barbara. I'm going up there. <laughs> Which you probably know Maurice pretty pretty well. You could see that, you know. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, that's funny because Maurice is the type of guy, too, where it's not like he's going to do anything. He probably just thought the view was cool. <laughs> no, he was, he was a different character, I remember. But, oh, yeah, still is. But in, in the volleyball – you know, there's so many of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How was that transition for you from men's to women's? Um, I, you know, it, it's, it's, it was interesting, right? So yeah. there's so many things in men's that require more attention uh, than they do with women's. Um, academics being the most obvious example, you know. Yeah. Um, that 2011 team was pretty good, but we had some issues academically that we had to make sure were taken care of uh, in order to get that team all eligible, right? And yeah. uh, with with women's, we have our academic issues. Obviously, there's always a few players that are you know struggling with the transition or, or whatever, but uh, it's not near the the situation it is with guys. Guys, you know, I, I think females just mature earlier are more focused on school and some guys kind of figure it out, but others are just, I'm here to play volleyball, man. And yeah. class is, Oh, I got, I know I got to do it, but do I, you know, I don't really want to do it. And, and, and it, it, they figure it out on the most part, or if they don't, they're gone. But um, whereas women's, it's just, it's so much simpler. There's always a few, Hey, let's get you a tutor. Let's do this. But you have a lot of kids that, that come in and get a three eight or three nine or whatever, and you're just like, I don't have to worry about it. Whereas the guys, you're like, all right, that's a one eight. We gotta, we gotta figure. <laughs> it out. Yeah. So, and I think the other side of it, you know, um, a lot of guys I think like to just play, and and I think there's more structure in women's volleyball, setting stuff up to uh, help the team be competitive. Um, but I, I'm, I'm finding the two sports are kind of merging, right? That women's is getting to be more like men's, men's is, you know, cause we have some pretty competitive kids on our team right now that, you know, they're, they're coming into the gym and they're setting stuff up before the coaches are there. Um, and this is at Nevada, they're just kind of doing it on their own cause they have fun with it. And they're competitive. And, yeah. um, you know, I didn't really see that in the past so much. Yeah, for sure. Especially the physicality of the game has changed tremendously on the women's side. And the way that it's being approached in general. Absolutely. Is a lot yeah. more like the men's game from what I've known. Just with the back row attack, you know. Oh, absolutely. And the, and the physicality is the right word. Looking at Stanford a couple of years ago, I was looking at that their front line, right? They're like averaging 6'6", six, six, something yeah. like that. Five, and I'm like, that's bigger than the team I played on. You know, when I, when I <laughs> was in college, I'm like, that's a bigger front front line you know it's uh it's nutty how how uh tall but also athletic some of the, the female athletes are that are going into volleyball now it's, it's remarkable for sure for sure well uh let's get it started first welcome to the podcast okay well thank you very much for having me you guys oh, yeah. Got it. it's about time 
We're stuck. Yeah, seriously. Seriously, it is about time. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, how did you get involved with volleyball from the get-go? How did you start playing? Yeah, so I, I went to Santa Barbara High School, and um, it's produced a fair number of, of good volleyball players, and uh, volleyball was pretty popular when I, when I got there. I didn't play my freshman year. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I played football. Uh, that was the wrong fit uh, for me. Uh, tall, thin guy that was slow, you know, um, not a whole lot of spots for you. But in volleyball, you could survive with those characteristics. So I played volleyball the next year um, and just really kind of fell in love with it. I mean, the, the, the team was, was pretty good. Uh, Karch had played there a few years before, and there was some really good support at the school. Uh, there was a lot of good regional players. A lot of the good the high schools around Santa Barbara were really good in San Marcos and Dos Pueblos. Um, and it just was really fun. And, and you know, the beach, uh, East Beach is only maybe not even 10 minutes from, from Santa Barbara High. So it was a pretty good situation. Um, so I kind of fell into it because I was tall um, and then just really had a lot of fun with it. Was Olmstead still the coach? So Olmstead was not. He was the city college coach at Santa Barbara City College. Okay. Uh, so it was interesting. My senior year uh, was 85. Karch came back with uh, Timmons and uh, Partee and um, Dvorak. And they, the three of those guys played my, my high school team. Um, and, they, and Karch kind of talked a little bit about what it was like playing at Santa Barbara. And he called Olmstead a slave driver. Because I could play for a guy that was a slave driver. And you got to figure that if Karch is calling you a slave driver, you had it, you had your ship in order. You know, I mean, you were, you wrote it, you uh, ran a tight ship, I guess the right analogy. And uh, um, Olmstead was a pretty intense guy, even at, at the community college level. Um, but I always had a great relationship with him. I never played for him, um, but I coached a bunch of his kids. And he obviously refed a lot of our matches in Santa Barbara, but uh, he had moved on to Santa Barbara City College, but was always a, uh, Force to be reckoned with, no doubt. For sure. Still, in his old age, he's still a force yeah. to be reckoned with on the stand. Absolutely. Uh, some of our players called him Viper from uh, <laughs> Top Gun. He kind of had that uh, <laughs> mentality, you know. He, he was not a guy. He was kind of quiet about it sometimes, but uh, there was always intensity that he brought, no doubt about it. So when you started playing in high school, did you immediately start playing club, or what was the club scene for you? So there was no club in Santa Barbara at that point. Right there, there was only high school. Um, so in the off season, we took a volleyball class, right? And they had us out on the pavement and we're playing, you know, it's just the advanced volleyball class. So we're out there playing with just other, you know, kids that want to play volleyball and, you know, we're trying to get better. So we're hitting balls hard and we're idiots at that point. So we're bouncing balls off people that don't really know how to play, but that was kind of the, that was your off season training. Uh, it wasn't until my senior year, um, that I played club and there was a team out of Palisades that reached out and said, Hey, would you want to play in our team? Um, so then I would drive, we only practiced one day a week. I drive down on uh, Saturday mornings to Palisade high school. We had an 8 a.m. practice uh, and we just practiced once a week. And uh, that was, uh, the coach was a guy named Mike Norman. If, if you know who that is, he was a, a pretty intense coach at Loyola Marymount for a while back when they had a men's team. Uh, pretty intense guy, played at UCLA. Um, he was our coach, and, you know, we put together a really good team, And, and uh, but that was the only club experience I had. And how did recruiting go at that point in time? Was there I mean, a back in the 80s, was when, like, when hey, I was, we think uh, you're pretty good, so come hop on, you know? 
uh, it was a little more involved than that. Um, you know, there was, I took some official visits and uh, it was clearly not as accelerated as it is now and not as involved. And, um, you know, the college coaches would like watch high school matches, right? I mean, yeah. we don't watch high school at all anymore just because one, it's during our season, um, but two, because the club level is so much higher. Those are the players that are, are dedicated. So um, you play a tournament at South Pasadena and, and the college coaches come and watch, you know, and then they'd figure it out from there. And, you know, film wasn't as popular, but, you know, you could make a VHS kind of thing back in the day and, and send that. Um, but most of it was just kind of uh, tournaments and, and high school matches. Because yeah, I remember Marv specifically saying, because they used to have the van. And so they'd like, they'd hop in the Pepperdine van or whatever, and they'd go to tournaments or they'd take the van to somebody's house. Yeah. Somebody's neighbor, you know, would look out yeah. and go, oh, Pepperdine's over. What's his name? Uh, Stubertlick house today. <laughs> Checking out Stubertlick. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was definitely different. It was more of a, I don't know, like a mom and pop organization than it is now with the amount of video you can watch and the number of kids, how invested players are in their own recruiting, right? The number of emails we're getting, obviously email didn't even exist back then. So communicating was writing a letter or making a phone call, um, which is more of a, a process than just, hey, I'm gonna set this form email to, especially in women's volleyball, you know, 300 coaches or whatever my top 50 are. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, the whole process of the ball. And what made you decide to end up at Santa Barbara? Um, a few reasons, right? It was, it was my hometown. Um, uh, they gave me the best scholarship offer, right? So that was part of it. Um, you know, with men's, it's, I think it was five back then. I, I think it's at four and a half now. So um, I was, you know, I was debating. I'd taken some visits, uh, you know, talked to Stanford pretty quite a bit, talked to uh, UCLA quite a lot. Uh, Marv was off getting ready to uh, win a gold medal uh, in Korea, right? So he wasn't running the show at Pep and when I was getting recruited. Um, but it just seemed like a good fit, you know. Um, it wasn't that I didn't want to leave home. It was kind of neat to be able to live in the dorms and still be only 20 minutes away from home. And so I got kind of the personal experience without it being I'm at home, um, but just was, was the best fit, you know, and it wasn't, you know, I was, I think back and I think this helps me in recruiting. Uh, I was a pretty big knucklehead in high school, just trying to figure stuff out. Like wasn't sure what I wanted or what I, what was important to me. Um, so I always try and remember that as I'm talking to recruits when they seem clueless. Um, but it just, I didn't really know what I was looking for. I just knew that at Santa Barbara, it, it felt right. So, for sure. I was going to ask, is that part of the reason why maybe you wanted to stay a little bit closer at home? Because you knew you were a knucklehead and you're like, man, if I go too far, I don't know if I'm going to be able to. <laughs> uh, you know, when I, say, when I say knucklehead, it's kind of relative. You know, uh, we've all coached and played some guys that are really big sure. knuckleheads. So I wasn't that guy. I wasn't going to, uh, you know, go and, and – probably wasn't going to flunk out, right? I wasn't a very good student simply because I, like, I didn't do homework back when I was yeah. in high school. I'd go to class all the time, but uh, I just didn't have time for it, even though I wasn't doing a lot of other exciting <laughs> stuff. So uh, it wasn't that. It wasn't like I'm just, I need the, the kind of anchor of home. Uh, it just was 
Santa Barbara was a pretty cool place and yeah. UCSB was a, a pretty neat thing. And, and, you know, my freshman year, I had a, a view of the ocean from my dorm room. It, it was uh, kind of a little more low key, which at the time uh, felt good. You know, it was uh, guys were pretty competitive, but it wasn't. Um, uh, it just it, it kind of I, I felt like I was going to get a little more help there getting me to help figure it out, I guess, is, is part of what. Oh, oh that's awesome. I think that's yeah. huge, too, in the recruiting process that a lot of probably kids don't realize. The guys actually probably realize it more than the women do because they get to pick later. Mm. You know, and so that at least they have the opportunity at 17 to talk to a coach kind of man to man and be like, are you going to help me out here? Or yeah. are you going to leave yeah. me out to dry and take yeah. somebody else or what's you know, sure. the deal here? Yeah, no, I absolutely. Huge. Yeah, no, I was, you know, I had a learning disability. I was a special admit. Um, there was a chance that I easily could have just kind of fallen off the bus. Um, and that, you know, they made sure that, that I kind of found the straight and narrow and, and, I think that helped me as I was coaching and I talked about it with the UCSB team when I was a coach there that was really good. I think my own experiences as a player helped me figure out that we can't just tell these guys, hey, look, you need to take care of grades and then move on. We've got to figure out what it is they need, what tools they need to be able to take care of grades. And, and I think that's helped me at Nevada as well in the women's game. Just not everybody comes in with the three nine, you know, and, and not everybody comes in with the foundation to be successful or the study habits, you know, some of that has to be taught, even if it's the volleyball coach that's involved in that process. Yeah. Sure. What did, what did the competition look like in the eighties? Like who was in your league? Um, how far did you guys travel? Just kind of take us through a season or take yeah. us through a typical yeah. So it was, the, it was the usual suspects. You know, I mean, there was a few more teams um, that had men's teams, right? San Diego State was good. Loyola Marymount had a men's team, right? I hate to say it now, but, you know, Stanford had a men's team. And um, it, it's, it was uh, – I remember looking back at some of the pictures when, like, Karch was playing at UCLA and they came to play at UCSB and some of the crowd, you know, support that, that was there um, – was pretty, pretty remarkable. And in 88, when we were pretty good, we made a, a, a pretty good run. You know, our, they call it the, the T-Dome now, the Thunderdome, but we called it the event center. You know, there was, there was thousands and thousands of people in there. And it was, it was really exciting to, to watch, to be a part of those matches. So the teams weren't that different, you know, um, and our travel was pretty simple. We were always, you know, our budget wasn't very big. We think the budget's being tight now, but back then, you know, players were driving vans, right? We, I remember driving, you know, like a Suburban uh, back from like a, a, a fault or early preseason tournament at Northridge. And I just remember driving down Highway 1 and trying to make a, a change of lane and the car in front of us stopped. And uh, Eric Fenoy Milano was in the back seat because he was a freshman. He, you know, he got regulated to those, those back little, little seats and he's screaming because the car is coming right at us. Uh, you know, we didn't crash, but it was – you know, seniors driving. We had a staff of, you know, a head coach and assistant coach uh, and a trainer, you know, so it was, it was pretty simple stuff. We didn't, we didn't know. I mean, obviously compared to basketball, even in the eighties, uh, you know, the staff sizes and the, the funding is always going to be a lot different, but um, pretty simple stuff, but, uh, but the teams were good and the, and the teams were motivated. And, you know, some schools like Lola, they didn't even have the, 
five scholarships, right? They, I think they had like two or something like that. So they were still able to, to get some really good players uh, just because there was a lot of guys that wanted to play volleyball and, and Southern California volleyball at the high school level was, was really popular. So uh, we had an A team, a B team, and we called them the dog squad. You know, we had probably 50 guys on the roster. Uh, the dog squad practiced at like 6 a.m. Uh, in a, this place called the old gym, which was literally still at UCSB. It was uh, left over from when it was a military base, you know, so it, it was just this big, <laughs> like barn that didn't have heating and you know Santa Barbara's not that cold but at six in the morning in, in February you know our setters are wearing gloves and and uh it was it was a challenge but there were a lot of guys that just wanted to play so um I think that part's changed right roster size is totally different but um <clears throat> it was fun because then we had uh, you know the guys in the A team B team and dog squad all knew each other and hung out so you had a bunch of buddies uh all throughout you know we had classes with guys you knew um, even if they weren't traveling, you had a pretty good kind of dynamic with that. And that part was really fun. That 88 year, that's year you guys went to the finals. <clears throat> Does it still sting? <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, it can't not. It, uh, it still creeps in there. That was a long time ago, right? Um, For sure. Yeah. A lot no, I've had this conversation. People yeah. think I'm crazy because it like yeah. still hurts. I'm like, no, it hurts. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the, the worst part is, and we were so close, right, in that we were up 2-0 in, in that against a really good SC team, and uh, and we had been playing some really good volleyball, and we had beat them at our place uh, a few weeks before um, in the last match of the season, and that's one of the ones I was talking about where we had thousands of people, and it was really fun. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it doesn't hurt unless you're invested. If you're invested, it's going to hurt. You know, and and that team, uh, we had a lot of guys that worked really hard. And, and, you know, I don't remember what we were picked to finish, but we had to beat some really good teams to, to get to the finals. And SC was was so talented, you know, multiple Olympians on future Olympians on that team. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's the kind of stuff that it sneaks in sometimes at weird times. You're like, why am I thinking about this right now? Um, and, you know, if, if we could have done a little bit more here or there, and, and um, I think that's just part of, of being in sports, that you have to be fully invested to, to try and get there. But if, if you are fully invested and you don't reach the pinnacle, you know, it's always going to sting. It's pretty much, I, I, unless something else dramatic happens in your life, there's always going to be a part of it that, um, that is frustrating. You know, we couldn't quite get over it. And, yeah, and then... You know, 2011, we went back and we lost in five again and as a coach. So it's like, you know, um, that one that one stinks too. So they, they kind of tag team on occasion when I'm thinking about uh, that stuff that uh, one sneaks in and then the other always brings the other one along, you know, so. Is but, there, uh, sorry, is there one thing that you remember as a player through that whole season, like culturally? that you apply now as a coach and then also in 2011 as a coach is there something that you took away from that team that you still use now today you know that's a that's a really interesting question because I, I think it was a part of that 88 team I just didn't realize it at the time um, and that was the culture the the level of commitment 
that the team had <clears throat> to each other, right? That um, we didn't all, we weren't all best friends, right? There's some guys that got along and some guys that didn't. Um, but when we were on the court, we were a team. And um, I think I kind of forgot about that piece after I played. I just was like, hey, we just need to get the best players. And as a coach, when I first started at Nevada, I was all about, hey, we've got to get the best talent, 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 talent. Um, that, that's our number one, our, our first, our second, our third concern. And the 2011 team had that same kind of chemistry that I was talking about with 88, that there were guys that, that weren't buddies, but they figured out how to compete and how to invest in each other. Um, and then we kind of struggled at Nevada a few years ago with that kind of talent only mentality. Um, and then I've kind of had to just rediscover, look, we've got to recruit culture a lot more than I'm doing right now. We've got to get the players in here that are going to support each other and not tear each other down. They're going to weather the storm when things are going poorly. And as we kind of figured that out, it really kind of reminded me of those two other teams that you've got to get players that are going to be in whether and supporting what you're trying to do, whether they're starting or not. Um, and we've really been focused on that. And I think we've been successful with the players we're recruiting here uh, to get that kind of mentality of, hey, I, I absolutely want to play, coach. I want to I want to start. I want to be in there contributing. But if I'm not, I'm not going to be a, a detriment to the team. I'm going to continue to support um, my teammates. And I remember having that conversation briefly with Ryan McGuire, who's at um, Baylor. We were playing Baylor a few years ago. Um, at, at University of Hawaii and he was talking about it how you know he was working on culture 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 and I was like man you guys are pretty good it kind of caught my attention and yeah. that was a year where we were struggling culturally so much um, that it really kind of struck a chord and that conversation has stuck uh, stuck with me even though it was just kind of offhand during you know uh, warm-up you know um, but yeah trying to get teams that are willing to support each other, I think ends up being fundamental to, to your success. And then you've got to find your way to work talent within that. At least the way I coach, maybe other coaches can do it a different way, but I didn't have success with that, with just the talent part. No, for sure. It when, makes a when lot you of were sense. a player, did that, did the positive culture that you were around, did that just happen organically? Cause there, I mean, there's so much research on and books and resources now that didn't exist then. Was it, something you guys paid close attention to? You know, that that's a really good question because it, some of it, the coaches were, would talk to us about, look, we've got to have a meeting. You guys got to figure some stuff out. Um, but then some players on the team really kind of took it on themselves to help build it. And uh, the person that comes to mind the most is John Wallace, who was our setter at the time. You know, walk on, small, um, didn't get recruited very heavily, but the guy was um, – you know, a, a competitor and, and ended up being a really good setter. Um, maybe literally with all the people I played with, maybe the best setter at putting the ball from A to B um, and just, you know, put signs up in the gym. I remember us coming back um, on in 88 and, and he had a sign with a big D and it had like desire, determination, you know, um, and I don't remember what the other one was at this point because that was a long time ago, but I remember it kind of caught my attention, like someone's willing to take the time to go make a sign to put it up in our practice gym. This wasn't our competitive gym. So our coaches talked about it, but I think some of our players kind of made it happen. And we had another guy named Pat Pennington 
who was uh, one of the biggest characters I ever played with, but just had a, a an engine, right? Just a motor that kept going, kept going in the weight room and in um, when we were running stadiums, you know, conditioning. He was a guy that kind of set a tone outside of the gym uh, that, you know, the rest of us, it kind of carried the rest of us along. So some of it was organic. And I think um, the coaches knew we had to do something, but it was really the players on that team, a couple guys that really just said, look, we've got to, we've got to change stuff. We've got to make it happen. We're not going to go beat UCLA, who at that time was winning like every, two out of every three national championships. Maybe it was like three out of every four. We're not going to beat them in Pauly unless we do something different. And uh, I think that's kind of where, how, it, how it happened. Yeah, I was going to ask, piggybacking off that, I was going to ask if there was just one like dominant alpha that was your leader that you could always look forward to, or was it a grouping of people that kind of led the charge? You know, it, it was a group. Um, like on the court, we had a guy named David Rotman, who was our go-to kind of garbage man outside hitter that could hit the ball really well, front row, back row. Um, he was he was a, a great, let's just throw it up to David and we have a pretty good chance we're gonna get a side out. So he was our, our leader in that sense. Um, and then Pat, who I talked about, was kind of our leader in, in work ethic. And then John was a little bit more the leader in trying to kind of put it together, I think. At least that's how I remember it. Um, so it wasn't one guy that just took us and, and made it happen. Uh, there was a bunch of guys that kind of played off each other. And those three guys often didn't get along very well, right? I mean, there were fights that I remember through my time playing, um, breaking up two different fights with, with David Rotman and, his, and the setters at the time, you know? And he was a very good, talented guy um, who had a lot of opinions, who did a lot of good things, and who the setters, he could drive them crazy, I think, at times. So um, there were personalities that didn't naturally mesh, but I think over time learned how to respect each other. And I think those guys ended up getting along pretty well and are now friends. I think I can say that, uh, <laughs> even though at the time there was some struggles because they, they worked hard. And I think there was that mutual respect that, look, we're either going to do it together or we're not going to do it. And, and those guys are the ones that kind of stirred the drink, you know? Yeah. I think that's something that's, it's something that we've all talked about now with the last dance coming out. That's like, you don't all have to like each other, but you got to respect each other. Absolutely. But it's definitely something that's undermined in sports. Cause I think people think positivity means everybody's got to be smiling, laughing, everything's hunky dory, singing Kumbaya all the time. Yeah. When yeah. in reality, it's not. Not at Especially all. Especially behind closed doors. It's usually the opposite. You know, oh, I, 30 percent of the time, it, there's usually a tough conversation or a fight that happens that like kind of just goes unnoticed because you're just yeah. competing. That's it. And, and I think you can't. It's really hard to avoid that if you are going to put a bunch of competitive people in the same room and have them competing for spots and traveling together and spending, you know, four or five months together. Yeah. Somebody's going to be really competitive and not playing, and that's going to be a really hard thing for them to deal with. And you don't want them to be complacent, though. You don't want to recruit a complacent B team that, hey, let's get that kumbaya because they're not going to rock the boat because that team's not going to be successful. Your B team has to push your A team. And the best teams I've ever been a part of, 
um, had a really, really talented B team that was always kind of knocking on the door. And if you don't have that, the A team, you know, I think you always run faster when someone's chasing you, right? I mean, you yeah. think you can run fast and then, you know, have someone try and chase you and catch you and then you find another gear. Um, but it is, that's the other side of the coin is you get that great competitive sense and people getting pushed, but you know, no one wants to sit on the bench. No one wants to be, yeah, I'm here to push somebody else. No, I'm here to play. And you've got to get those players that are able to kind of find that balance, but it's always a little bit of, uh, man, we're riding the tiger here and we don't always get to choose when we're getting off. Sure. How was that? How was that balancing act as a coach when you had that 2011 team? Because that's that was a team with a lot of personalities. So for sure, there are some characters involved, and it's everybody, not just senior, but there are some fifth-year seniors too. Yeah. So they wanted it. I mean, it's a lot of time to invest in something. How was it as a coach to balance all those characters as well? That was. uh, I learned a lot that year. Um, from, I mean, luckily we had a, a, a great head coach in Rick McLaughlin. I think he, uh, kind of flies under a lot of people's radar cause he's not very vocal. He's not out there, um, you know, kind of trying to shine a light on himself. Uh, I think he was a great steward of that team, but we also had some players on that team that could be a calming influence, right? Um, Andy McGuire was our libero who, you know, no one really thinks about your libero that much unless you're kind of really into the weeds of a volleyball team. Um, and they voted him captain as, as a freshman. You know, he was that organized and that dedicated and that part of a worker. Uh, he's a pretty unique person. I feel like I've been around some pretty focused individuals, um, but he, he was at a different level. And I think his ability to kind of set the tone of, being the safe port, you know, during a storm helped us a lot. And then we had some personalities that, you know, you had to figure out what, what button to push to get him to, to kind of buy in, you know, and, and there was another guy on that team named Scott Slaughter, who um, just wasn't great with people telling him how to do stuff. You know, uh, he kind of always had his own opinion. And once we found the right way to kind of mentor him, I think, he ended up being a really important part of that team. And I think he ended up being the number one in hitting percentage. He was the number one guy in the country in hitting percentage that year. So he had some tools. Um, it was just a question of figuring out how you get him to use those tools consistently. Um, and it, it brings to mind that, you know, you have to have your team rules and everybody's taught the same or the same under those rules. But at the same time, you can't coach everybody the same. It's not, you're not trying to be fair with how you coach your players. I'm going to coach everybody the same it's the, as if they're the same person. You got to figure them out individually and figure out what works. Because if you just treat them like a number, these are just uh, 16 players on my team and they're all getting the same, the same stuff. I think it's like a diet. Some people need more of this, more of that. And if you're ever going to get the most out of that team, you've got to put in the time to, to figure out what that is. And, and I think that team really convinced me of that. Of We've got to figure this out for each guy. And, and, you know, we had some good guys sitting on the bench that, yeah, we're winning, but they're, they're struggling with it. And, and that's another piece that is always a, a challenge to figure out. Yeah, I could not agree more with the diet analogy. That's what, I mean, that's how you feel as a setter too. I bet. Right. I bet that's you exactly know, like, right. uh, 
yeah, there's some guys that you got to yell in their face. There's some guys you got to hug. There's some guys you got to cry with. And like, you just, you just deal with it. I always say we're overpaid babysitters. That's exactly right. Because no, no. <laughs> you're just game managing Absolutely. at the end of the day. You're yeah. the second assistant or third assistant, however deep your coaching roster is. Yeah. And you're, you're just wheeling and dealing and figuring it out. And you're like, all right, how do I keep this boat from sinking? Absolutely. And, and which guys you can repeat to and which guys you have to repeat to or you might lose them. Yeah. And which guys, if you repeat to, you're getting a tip out of the next ball. And, yeah. and how do you figure it out? And, and our center at the time, I didn't mention it in, in the 2011 team. Yeah, Chen's is great. I mean, he's the brand. Chen's got really good at that. He, he was a quiet kind of just set the ball, work hard guy at the beginning. And he really learned how to, how to babysit, you know, and he got it in, in practice too. He could figure out him and Menzel became pretty good friends and, and Menzel was a little bit of a handful at times. Um, but he had, he had Menzel doing some really good things at the time he needed to do it. Um, and I think Vince was a, a big part of that, you know? Yeah. And Chen's just a really good guy. You know, he, he came in kind of just quiet and by the end he was the one, he was calling guys out and trying to figure out how to lead by doing that. Um, and it was, it was a neat evolution with that guy. He's one of my favorite setters of all time. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my saying. favorite teams of all time. <laughs> yeah. Cause it might, well, it was, my generation, was, that's yeah. my gen for my generation. That team represents and defines the MPSF. Right, because you guys were the seventh seed. You go into number two BYU, take them out in four, and they had lost like one game that whole season. At they home. were tough, especially at home. Yeah. yeah, and then and that's it. That was a senior-ridden team too. So it's not like you just walked in there and beat a bunch of young bucks. No, no. You take that. Uh, it was awesome, man. What a run! I still get goosebumps just thinking about the run. <laughs> no, it, it the was whole really thing. Yeah, no, it was fun to be a part of it. And, and I, we were talking about how they sting, but, you know, inevitably, uh, you know, it's a, it's a heavy analogy, but when you lose someone close to you, you're sad, but at the same time, you know, you, you smile about the stuff that made, brought them, they were close to you, right? And, yeah. and it's, it's not that different when you play in a match like that, where there are times you're, where you're, it, it does sting, but there are other times you're like, that was so much fun coaching that group of guys or playing with that group of guys, man, I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing. Um, and the one thing I would change is, yeah, I would win both those matches, but I don't know if I would change anything else. Um, and that, that just is what it is at this point. But there are a lot of really positive memories. And, and that match at BYU was, was one of them. That, that team was so good. Um, and our team didn't really find its rhythm till the end. You know, we had been thumped by SC at SC uh, early in the year. Uh, you know, I think Menzel stayed up all night turning the paper in and, and just didn't have a great match to start. And then it was like a renaissance for him at the end of the year. He really kind of found his rhythm. And there were, you know, a bunch of family friends that or buddies from from college that lived in L.A. came and watched that match at SC. Didn't really know a lot about volleyball, knew a lot about sports. Were like, that's one of the coolest sporting events I've been to. And uh, <laughs> it just was a really fun group to do it with. Uh, and that, you know, it ends up being about the people you're doing stuff with, and, and that was a, a really fun group. And with so many personalities on it. You know, yeah. Menzel's obviously the most obvious because the guy was such a brute out there, you know, just bouncing <laughs> balls. And, 
and I still show our, our outsides. I some clips from him. He just do a mental search, uh, and he's just bouncing balls. And we're talking about step close, and I still use him as the example because he's you know now he's he got the full beard and he's just uh, a character just to look at. Um, but he was he was really a fun guy to coach most of the time. You know, uh, deep down, he was a really good guy, and and I really liked coaching him, and, and I bonded with that guy. He just was a knucklehead sometimes, but man, when he found his rhythm, uh, he was just really fun to be around. For sure, for sure. So then, after you got after you finished at Santa Barbara, what was the next step? Uh, the next step was, I knew I wanted to to get back in the women's game. Okay. Um, and I thought, hey, you know, uh, we just went to the national championship match. I should be able to find a gig relatively easy. Uh, it didn't happen that way. I was kind of sitting out for a while. I told Rick early, hey, look, I'm going to be out. Go ahead, you know, so you can figure out uh, the next staff guy, whoever it's going to be, so you can have them. So I'm not kind of um, bailing right away. Uh, but I sat around for a while, and then luckily a good opportunity opened up in Miami. Um, I reached out uh the head coach, um, it's funny, Nicole, I left Santa Barbara to be her assistant at Miami. One year later, she left Miami to go back to Santa Barbara to be the women's coach. Uh, so literally, I moved all the way across country, and then she moved all the way across country to move in the office I had just vacated a, a year before. Um, but that, that was a, a good fit for me for a while, I think. Um, Miami's a, a pretty interesting town. A lot of people... Um, a very active nightlife there. A lot of people go running around all the time. And then lucky enough, the next year, Jose Gondara, who was my one of my teammates on that 88 team, he was the other middle, uh, he ended up getting the head coach job. So I stayed with him for, for two years um, before the Nevada job opened up. So, um, and then I got to work with some really good other assistants, one of whom, who I'm sure you know, is Alex Dumphy. Yeah. Uh, she was the assistant for one year there and, and we got to be pretty good friends. Uh, we still communicate a lot. Uh, she's a funny person who I have a great deal of respect for and, and uh, kind of touch base, even though she's now living uh, on the other side of the country again. For sure. Why did you want to get back in the women's game? Part of it, two main reasons. One is, is uh, basic. There's just so much more opportunity. You know, if you want to be a head coach and you're on the men's side, there's a lot of really good men's coaches. There's not a lot of really good jobs. Uh, at least at the Division One level. I mean, there's just not a lot of jobs, period. Um, whereas women's Division One, there's 300-plus head coaching jobs just in Division One, plus two, three NIA uh, kind of thing, where um, I really enjoyed coaching men's volleyball. Uh, I just was like, you know, Rick's a year, a year younger than I am, so I'm certainly not going to wait for the Santa Barbara job to open up when he <laughs> retires, you know, when he's 75 or whenever that's going to be. Um, so I just thought that if I'm going to get ahead jobs at some point, um, I've got to go to uh, the women's side where there's just a lot more opportunity. And then I think my personality, my coaching style suits the women's game a little bit more. Um, I'm not really a, a get in your face guy unless I have to be. It's just not how I coach generally. Um, and I think that's not as necessary in the women's game. More, It's more about trying to build that chemistry um, on a women's team, but a lot of players come in with that as a, a primary reason why they play volleyball. So it, it's an easier, often I think it's an easier thing to build. Um, and I, I think my talents, if I have them any, are more suited to that um, as, as opposed to the men's game. Some guys just need to be held a lot. Um, and that's how you motivate. And that's not my natural state. It's just what I do if I have to do it. 
And then when you were at Miami, you decided you wanted to find a head coaching job. Were you looking for a few years or were you waiting for a geographical location specifically? Yeah, so I wasn't in a hurry to leave Miami. Um, I liked working with Keno. Um, it was a good place. The team was good. I liked our players. Um, I was ready at that point to be a head coach, though. At least I felt like uh, my patience was running out with being an assistant coach. Is maybe the better way to state it as opposed to truly being ready to be a head coach. So I was looking around, but I wasn't just, I got to get a head coaching job. Where can I go? It was more... Um, what's a good place that I think I could try and build something that I want to be a part of. And, you know, starting the interview process, there was a few jobs that I think I would have taken uh, had I been better at the process. And that's like anything, you have to kind of screw it up sometimes to, to learn. Um, and there were some interviews that, I, that didn't go very well, but that I learned a lot from. And so by the time Nevada opened, I was like, oh, this is a, a no brainer for me. If I can get that, I kind of had the interview part figured out. And I, having lived here already and gone to grad school in Reno um, and coached here for a year, I knew it was a place that I wanted to, to be a part of and I thought I could help be successful. So I looked for a little bit, um, but I wasn't really in a hurry. I was, I was ready to, to take a job, but it still had to be the right job. It wasn't just a job. For sure. Um, you've been in the game for a while and I've heard you say that this has been the weirdest year of not just your coaching life, but your personal life as well. Um, what do you think some changes that are happening this year? Do you think any of them are going to stay? Like, for example, how our conference adjusted the travel schedule to back-to-back -back nights. Um, but anything that you can think of. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And, and, and I'm with you on that, that it is the weirdest in part because – Generally, when you have a year that's an off year or whatever it is, you have something else to compare it to at least. This year, there's, there's nothing to compare it to. The amount of uncertainty, the amount of downtime, the fact that we're recruiting and offering kids scholarships that we've never met or seen play live um, is all really challenging. And that may be one of the areas it does change. Uh, at least I'm thinking personally, I've been very hesitant in the past to offer kids scholarships if I haven't seen them play live or I haven't had a chance to meet them or at least have the team meet them. But with the amount of interaction going on with Zoom and, and all that and the amount of film kids can put together, I feel more comfortable because it's a necessity right now. And in the time of COVID, if you're, only, if you're gonna wait to see a kid play live, you're gonna miss out on a whole class and, and maybe two classes. So you've gotta be able to make some adjustments. And, it's possible that I'll get more comfortable with that, that look, hey, we had a pretty good recruiting year in 21, even though we didn't get to see those kids a lot. Um, but look, they're, they're doing great. They've come in and, and really helped us. And we were able to figure out that they fit culturally um, through Zoom calls and through our players, them reaching out to our players and, and having those conversations. So that might be the place that changes the most, but I don't think the conference will, will stay the same. I, I think we're gonna want, there's too much pushback um, to that. I mean, we're complaining about it now. And, and the only reason I think it's working is because nobody has a budget to do anything else. Right. But if we get back on, um, on the right track financially, I think coaches are going to want to have, I play here, I play home and away just for uh, conference integrity. And, and um, especially when we have a conference tournament or 
determining seeds or who's going to go to the NC2A tournament, you know, often we're a one bid conference, you know, we, we get two or three on occasion, but man, those, there's not a lot of uh, room for error trying to win the conference and teams are going to want to play at home and away. I think that's going to come back to normal as soon as we can afford it. Um, but other than that, you know, Jackson, I haven't really thought about what it's going to be like after just because I'm constantly thinking about how do we get through this, you yeah. know, uh, um, you, you know, we've worked together, you know, I'm no visionary. I'm more of a, hey, what do we got to do tomorrow? Let's try and plan ahead for that. But uh, yeah, sometimes it's hard to think about some of those bigger um, ticket options down the road, just because partly, you know, we don't know when that's going to happen. And, you know, we start practicing in a month. So I'm just other stuff kind of focused on it. And, and I think you and I will have to figure it out as it comes. Yeah. Is there one thing, this is, your fourth season as a head coach now? It's going to be my sixth. Sixth season? Oh, my gosh. Fast. God, time flies. Yes. Is there something that you could tell yourself in your first year now where you're like, man, I really screwed that up my first year, but you've learned now in year six? There's something um, you could tell yourself or like, I wish I would have had this piece of advice. You know, actually, I'm telling to myself constantly. And, and we kind of addressed it and it's recruiting kids that are culture oriented, right? Um, I can't, I know I've talked a lot about it, but I, I can't get away from that part now. That's where I'm at. Now, we're not just out recruiting kids that are greater culture that can't jump or hit a ball, right? It's just trying to find kids that, and I say kids because when you're recruiting them, they really are, that understand how to be a part of a process that's not just about them, um, but also capable of playing volleyball at a high level because we got, we had some pretty good recruits. Um, and, you know, my, my third year here, I really thought that we were going to have a chance to, to be really successful and talent wise. We had some, some pretty good players, but because the culture was, was off anytime we hit a bump in the road or when every time, you know, we were struggling, there was no foundation there. So yes, I'd have that conversation with myself, look, get some really good volleyball players that want to be a part of a team. Um, and as we look at recruits now, I still am having that conversation with myself, but also with Jackson and Corinne. Hey, look, where, you know, where are we at with this kid if it's them fitting in? And, and, you know, I think important thing about being a coach, a head coach is hiring a staff that will push you, but also has your same fundamental ideas um, in mind that are on the same page. So, I think we have a staff that totally buys into that. Um, so it, it's easy if I forget that they'll remind me, but that's the thing for sure is, is you're trying to build a team here, not just recruit a bunch of good volleyball players. For sure. And are there certain, are there certain intangibles that stick out to you when you're recruiting a kid or is it something that just gets built over time in your relationship through the recruiting process? Are you talking about, the cultural part or just any re the recruit? No, like, just specifically the cultural part. Like, can you see I, a kid and think, wow, like they're, they're a great teammate or is it something that you have to converse with them and then have a better understanding of where they stand behavior wise, attitude wise? I think a conversation makes a big difference because I think even players that are a handful and have a lot of negativity, you may not see that when they're playing club because they're the best player on the team, they're starting, their team's winning. 
man, everything's rosy. You know, um, it's kind of like the, the videos we get from Liberos. Man, they're all passing perfect, right? You only yeah. see the best stuff. They're not putting their shanks on and, and their mess serves in the bottom of the net. You know, when you watch uh, good club players, often their teams are doing pretty well and their things are, are good and, and everything's right with their world. You don't know what they're going to be like until, you know, they're sitting on the bench and not traveling or maybe they're the fourth outside hitter. And then all of a sudden, man, this kid is just blowing up our locker room and, and we got to figure that out. So you can see it sometimes, right? The real, some of the real trouble cases are the kids we might not recruit even when things are going right, you know, they're all in their own world. And yeah. I think you get a strong enough culture. You can hopefully take some kids in like that, that are really good volleyball players that maybe just haven't figured it out. So, um, you know, I think there's a balance to be had. You, you can't just get only the, the best leaders out there. Sometimes you have to take some, some chances on, on kids. And um, I remember hearing, this is, I think, a pretty old statement, but some people you invite to your table because they've earned it, and other people you invite to your table because they might earn it, you know. And that's kind of where, where we're at with that, is there's some strong, you got to have a strong culture. You have to have a strong locker room when co uh, coaches aren't there. If you have that, you can take a few more risks with some other kids, hoping that they'll kind of uh, find their way when you have that strong culture uh, already established. But if you don't have that, there's a lot less room for error, I think. Um, so talking to them personally, I think is, is important. Um, I like them to try and reach out to our players to get our players' opinion. You know, I'm 53. My take on them is gonna be very different than, you know, our 19-year-old liberos. Yeah. who's going to maybe see them on a visit and see what they're like and get a chance to interact with them. So um, we, we talk to them a lot. We have a lot of conversations. We try and get them to reach out to our players if we can't have a visit. Um, but yeah, no, uh, meeting them is, is still pretty fundamental, at least at the minimum, like a Zoom call or something like this, where you can have a conversation and get a sense of what their priorities are. For sure. And as for your current athletes, I'm guessing that there are some girls that stand out as leaders. With them, do you have conversations with them about the culture that you want to set and certain things that they're doing in practice that you feel are either good or bad? Absolutely. Um, we, we try and talk to them every week, even when we're not in, in practice. Um, having, us, having them call us if they don't want to, they don't have to. Um, but we do have those conversations. We have some that are kind of trying to figure that out. And I talked about staff earlier and, I, and I'm lucky with that, that um, I can delegate some of that to both my assistants. And they're both talking to players on our team that need some of that guidance that um, it can come across sometimes as a little heavy handed if it comes from the head coach. And if you have assistants that can help them navigate it you know, uh, it's more like your uncle or your aunt kind of helping you out as opposed to your parent grounding you, you know. So um, I think we do a lot of that where it's not just me. I have those conversations, but usually the first round of it is is Jackson or Corinne, you know, depending on who the player is, what their position is, right? Jackson's working with our setters. So uh, if we're having issues there, he'll be the one to have that conversation. If it's our pins uh, or our libs, it's going to be Corinne. So um yeah, we, we do have those conversations. And then we have our conversations with our leaders on the team about, look, we've got to get everybody on board here. What are our plans? What's our plan? How are we going to do this? 
and how's how the last attempt work because it looks like sometimes it's working sometimes it's not um but we also understand that nobody comes in fully formed that that's a big part of our job is to help them figure it out uh, as opposed to just telling them to do it so um, yeah. we have a lot of conversation about it we read a read a book um this fall uh, and that was a big part of addressing some of the issues uh we're dealing with and trying to get our team to, to buy into um, addressing the stuff right away and coming up with a plan as opposed to just sweeping under the rug and letting it fester. That's awesome. That's huge. That's like, seriously, that's huge. That can change an entire season right there. That, well, takes, can from, program. that could take you I, from eighth to fourth place just on yeah. personality. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and the book wasn't my idea, right? It was, it was Jackson and Corinne and came up to me and said, Hey, let's, let's do this. Uh, they picked the book and, and I helped facilitate a little bit, but really the reason it was so valuable is because our players bought into it, right? We would, we talked originally, we said maybe 30 to 45 minutes and some of these calls went over an hour and it was because our players were coming up with good stuff and, and talking about it and, and really revealing personal stuff and, and building trust at a time when we couldn't see each other. So uh, it was, uh, it was really valuable. Yeah. And it, it ends up taking all of us for sure. And that's part of where the joy comes from is when you do have success, you get to look at everybody and know everybody's invested and you couldn't have done it with just, you know, a couple key components. You really need to have everybody on, on board. Preach. <laughs> <laughs> Preach. Yeah. I'm in. Well, Lee, that's all I got, man. You killed it. <laughs> well, good stuff. Uh, all right. Well, good stuff, you guys. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you. Okay. Take care.